Thank you, Jordan, for reading our scripture. We are looking at Genesis chapter 13 tonight. I do want to mention very quickly that we had a great luncheon today in honor of our graduates. We appreciate, appreciate our young folks. We appreciate our young graduates. And we pray that God will bless them richly as they begin embarking upon new experiences in life. Tonight we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 13. And in our study together, we're going to be talking about the theme... The grass may be greener, but it's not always better. I imagine many of us have heard the expression, the grass is always greener on the other side. That may be true, but it might also not be so true. And so tonight I want us to look at Genesis chapter 13, and I want you to consider with me a situation that occurred between the families of Lot and Abram. And I want to begin our study tonight by first of all addressing the problem. And then from the problem we're going to note the proposal and then finally the plight. Let me just very quickly begin reading with me in chapter 13 verse 1 and listen to what is recorded for us. Then Abram went up to went up from Egypt he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them or bear them, that they might dwell together. For their possessions were great, so that they could not dwell together. And then verse 7. And there was strife between the, herd, the herdmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. I want to begin by, first of all, as we think about the problem, talk about the source of this problem. The source of the problem is spelled out in chapter 13. The source of the problem, as you well know, their vast wealth. Sometimes we have the idea that if we just had more, material goods, money, whatever it might be, that our lives would be much better. And yet sometimes what we fail to remember is that vast wealth can bring a number of problems. As a matter of fact, the text tells us that Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Both of these men had been blessed, materially speaking, there is nothing intrinsically wrong with material goods, nor with money. The question is, are we a good steward of that which God has blessed us with? As a matter of fact, Paul said, Charge them that are rich in this present world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Sometimes there's the tendency, when we have a lot of things, the tendency is that we think, it's all a result of what we have done. And many times we hear the expression, I pulled myself up by my own 
bootstraps. Well, I understand that hard work, effort, go into the making of money and the increase of material goods. But God is the source of all blessings, isn't He? And so there are a couple of things to remember. Wealth can sometimes bring great headaches. Look, if you would, again at what is said in verse 7. There was strife between the herdmen of Abram's livestock and the herdmen of Lot's livestock. In other words, the land was a, wasn't able to bear them. And so conflict arose. Why? Because of the vast multitude of flocks and herds that they had. Not only does wealth potentially bring headaches, but also heartaches. There have been a lot of people in our world today, a lot of people past and present, that have any number of headaches and heartaches because of material goods. Now you might be thinking, you know what, if I just had a little bit more money, or if I had a bigger home, or a better car, nicer clothes, etc., if I had all these things, then surely I'd be happy in life. You know, one of the problems is, the more you get, the more you want. A second problem is, once you get it, then you've got to try to keep it. And so it can create a number of problems. I mentioned just a moment ago, sometimes the tendency is, the more you have, the more you want. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6? He said, those that are minded to be rich fall into a temptation and snare, and many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. He went on to say the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which some men, having striven for or gone after, have pierced themselves through with many sorrows and been led astray from the faith. So wealth, while it can be a blessing, can also be a curse. So we think about the source of their problem, but then if you would, note the course of their problem. Because of their vast wealth, they had a problem. And the course of this problem led to what I would call a verbal war. Notice, if you would, what is said. The Bible says that there was strife. In other words, there was conflict. There was quarreling or bickering. You know, sometimes when we become angry with someone or when there are misunderstandings, we begin fussing and feuding and fighting. And ultimately, what does that lead to? Faction, division, can destroy relationships. And you think about the relationship that had existed, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, that had existed previously between Abram and Lot. Back in chapter 12, God had called upon a man by the name of Abram. Abraham would ultimately, ultimately become, as you well know, the father of the Hebrew nation. Upon his shoulders would rest the coming of the Messiah, the Messianic King, as we say. Jesus would come through the lineage of Abraham and later Isaac and Jacob and Judah, the family of David, and on down through the line. So, this verbal war ensues. And there's strife that develops between the two parties. So note, if you would, the proposal. Sometimes it takes rational people, calm, cool, and collected individuals to come up with a proposal to try to rectify or remedy a difficult situation. So first there is what I would 
suggest is the call for peace. And there are a couple of reasons why, if you look at the text, why there was a call for peace from Abram. First, it had to do with their association. In other words, their brotherly association. Note again what is said. In verse 7, the Bible says, There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock, the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Verse 8, So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. Why? For we are brethren. In other words, we're family. Now if you look at the history, you think about the history of their family. Abraham and Lot were related, were they not? Abraham was Lot's uncle. And so there are blood ties here. There's a blood relationship. And you think about the history of their family and the, and the harmony. I think in reading the text, there had not always been strife or contention between their herdsmen, between their family members. What happens sometimes is a conflict will arise between one or more parties, and before you know it, lines have been drawn in the sand, it becomes politicized, and before you know it, you've got all kinds of problems. So here is Abraham, and he's saying, look, what we need to do is resolve this situation. There is the call for peace. And one of the reasons is because of our association, because we're brethren, we're brothers. And I think in the church, sometimes we need to step back because we don't always agree on everything together. We don't always see things eye to eye. And sometimes we become hot-headed, angry at decisions or maybe the thinking of other people in the realm of opinion. What we need to do is step back and remember, look, we're a part of the church. We're family members. And what God's intent is that we get along. In Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, Paul, as you well know, was a prisoner of the Lord. And he besought them to walk worthy of the calling with which they had been called. He said, with all lowliness and gentleness, in other words, with humility and with meekness. Meekness is simply strength under control. He went on to say, with long-suffering. Bearing with one another in love. In other words, you bear with, you forbear, you put up with people. In verse 3 he said, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so there's this concerted effort to be at peace with one another, to have unity. Wasn't it the psalmist that said, behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity? So the call for peace. First, there is an appeal for peace on the basis of their association. And then secondly, an appearance. What about the appearance? In other words, potentially this could have looked bad in the eyes of the world. So, look at what it said in verse 7 again. There is strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock, the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, now note, the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. Whenever conflicts, problems, come up in the body of Christ, what we need to understand is, first and foremost, the world is watching. 
And the world wants to know, how are we going to deal with our problems with one another? Are we going to do the biblical thing? If we have a conflict with one another, are we going to strive to the best of our ability to resolve that conflict? Are we going to follow the prescription of Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 5, and go to a brother or sister, acknowledge whatever wrongdoing may have taken place, and seek for reconciliation? Why? Because if we don't, it can create a bad taste in the eyes of the world. Look, in the world, there is plenty of strife and contention and conflict. In the world, it is dog-eat-dog, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In the world, the attitude is, you get me, I'll get you one better. That's not the way it ought to be in the church. People in the world are looking for a haven of rest, so to speak. People in the world are looking for something better. If they want to live in an atmosphere of bickering and fighting and feuding, look, they've got that. So in the church, shouldn't be like that. Now, that's not to say that we don't have our disagreements from time to time, that we don't have misunderstandings. There is the perfect side of the church, and there is the imperfect side of the church. The perfect side of the church is the divine side. That has to do with Christ, who built the church, bought the church. It belongs to Him. That's the divine side of the church. That's the perfect side. The imperfect side is comprised of people like us. We are the imperfect people, aren't we? And why do we need the church? Because it's in the church that we enjoy the blessings of Christianity or the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ runs through the body of Christ. So when we're in the body of Christ, we enjoy the benefits and the blessings of Christ and His blood. We're redeemed by His blood. We're reconciled in His body. And we have the hope of heaven because of our relationship to the Lord. So there is this call for peace. But then there is the cost of peace. What does peace cost? If you look at the text, you'll find out that it cost Abram something. First, there was the surrender of property or land. Look at verse 9, if you would, and listen to what Abram says. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. He said, if you take the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. So we think about this willingness to surrender property. Sometimes we have to be willing to yield some ground to get along. I'm not talking about compromising biblical truth. But there are times in the realm of opinion when maybe we need to give some ground. Why? To get along. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when you had members of the body of Christ in the city of Corinth? And if you look at the people that were a part of the church in Corinth, they came out of a pagan background, didn't they? You had people that were filled with idolatry and immorality. They've obeyed the gospel, and now they're in Christ. And so Paul takes them to task because they're litigating with one another. They're taking each other to court, suing one another. And you know what Paul said? 
Here was Paul's remedy to members of the body of Christ that are going before the court system and trying to resolve their differences. He said, look, you suffer the wrong. There comes a point in time when as a child of God, look, suffer the wrong. Suffer some loss. That's what Paul said. So we think about there was this yielding of property. The surrender of property. And then there was the selection of property. Note verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So basically, Abram says, look, choice is yours. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. Abram was willing to give Lot the choice. And so, I want you to think with me now in the third place of the plight. You remember I said a moment ago, the grass... Maybe greener, but it's not always better. There are a lot of people in our world today, there are a lot of folks in the church, they need to learn that lesson. Sometimes we need to learn that lesson. Because sometimes we have the idea, because we're always looking over the fence, aren't we? And the idea is, man, it sure looks good over there. Well, note if you would, first, the foolish choice. And there's a reason why this choice was foolish. Lot made this choice on the basis of sight. Look again at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord. So here is Lot surveying the land and you think about his flocks and his herds and he's thinking you know what I'm going to take this rich fertile piece of land did you know that sometimes looks can be deceiving I promise you it's true you ever heard the expression smoke and mirrors you know things aren't always like they appear Advertisers are tremendous at selling products, aren't they? And they can sell you products sometimes that you don't want and you don't need, but they're good at what they do. I told a fellow one time, he had a gift of talking, tremendous talker. I said, you know what? You could sell bulldozers door to door. He could. Big bulldozers, small bulldozers, it didn't matter. He could sell them. He had that kind of ability. Look, looks can be deceiving. And there are lots of people in our world today that are duped by what they see. We got a lot of young people here, and I'm grateful for every single young person. Now, the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. The choices we make, the decisions that 
we render in this life ought to be made on the basis of faith. Now, how does faith come? The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So when we make a decision in life, we ought to base that decision not on sight, but on faith. We walk by faith. The difficult part is walking by faith and not by sight. Lot made his decision on the basis of what he saw. I mentioned our young folks just a minute ago. If you listen to your peers, if you listen to your classmates, if you listen to people in your neighborhood, they're going to tell you alcohol is the way to go. You want to get high, you want to have a buzz, you want to enjoy life, that's what you need to do. Let me tell you what, they're deceiving you. It might look good, it might sound good, you might think it tastes good, but I promise you, it'll destroy your life. Destroyed a lot of people. The Bible says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Not only are looks deceiving, but lust is defeating. Did you know the devil is a master at baiting people? In James chapter 1, James said, Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempts he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away by what? By his own lust. And lust, he said, when it has conceived, brings forth sin. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so he said, do not err, my beloved brethren. Please listen very carefully. The devil's out here putting bait out. To young and old, the rich, the poor, the educated, the uneducated. It really doesn't matter. And the devil is out baiting people. And he understands because he is the God of this age. And because he's so good at what he does, he understands, he understands that not every single person is going to bite the same kind of bait. So he uses different types of lures, different types of bait. And one by one, day by day, month by month, year by year, he gets people. And he reels them in. And before they know it, they're caught up in a life of sin. It happens every single day. I mentioned before, I went back and reread an article that I had been familiar with, in which a writer, a Christian writer, said that we are losing some 80% of our young people in the church today when they reach, by the time they reach the age of 21. 80%. Why are we losing that many young people? Are there viable reasons why young people are walking away from their relationship to God, from the church, going back into the world, getting caught up in who knows what? Look, the devil is out selling day by day. And so, Lot made his choice on the basis of sight. The choices you make in life don't, make, don't base those choices on sight. Ask, what does God's Word say? Ask the question, what would God have me to do? What would the Lord want me to do? It might be that you have somebody that you look up to spiritually. It might be worth asking the question, what would he or she do? Would they do the same thing? It'll keep you in check. So first he makes 
this decision on the basis of sight. Secondly, he makes it on the basis of self. Look again at our text. He lifts his eyes. He sees all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. Verse 11, then Lot chose for himself. You know what that tells me? It's all about Lot. It's about what he wanted. Now you think about it. This is your uncle. You've got a problem. Don't you think that you would defer and say to your uncle, you know what, you take, you take whatever land you want, and I'll take the other. No, that wasn't how Lot thought. And so, for Lot, it was all about his wealth and his welfare. And let me tell you what, he paid a heavy price for that, didn't he? Sometimes we need to step back and consider how our decisions will impact the lives of others. No one is an island unto himself. When you make decisions in life, particularly if you are a married person or you have children, you need to ask the question, how's that going to impact my, my mate, my husband, my wife? What's that going to do to my children, potentially? Is it going to help them, hurt them? Is it going to build them up in the faith, going to break them down? Viable questions. So we think about his foolish choice and then the frightening consequences. Note, if you would, what is said. First, the place where Lot chose to pitch his tent. Note, if you would, what is said. Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Two things here. Sodom was a city filled with ungodly people. When you make decisions in your life, let's just say you're thinking about going to work for somebody else. You need to look long and hard at the people you're going to be working with. It might be you're already in a vile environment and you're trading one vile environment for another. It might be the case that you're in a situation where you have bosses or employers that favor Christianity and they're happy for you to be a person of faith, to talk about your faith, and to try to be a godly influence. And you think, why would I trade the known for the unknown? I've known a lot of folks that have thought the grass was greener on the other side of the fence, only to get on the other side of the fence and realize, you know what, I just traded one set of problems for another. It happens all the time. And so, Sodom was a city filled with ungodly people. The Bible says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We live in a wicked world, a sinful world. Jesus said in John chapter 3, Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. I get it. The world is filled with ungodly people. 
And there are a lot of people in our world today, they like their lifestyle. They're not open to change. They don't care about Christianity. So, I might have to work with them. I can try to influence them. I might have to be around them, but I don't have to pitch my tent among them day by day. So first you think about, he pitches his tent among ungodly people, and then he pitches his tent in a city of ungodly practices. Do you know what Sodom and Gomorrah was known for? Homosexuality. Plain and simple. You can read the book of Genesis chapter 19. And you can read of those two angels that came to the household of Lot to warn him of the impending destruction that was to take place in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in that ungodly city among ungodly people, do you know what they tried to do? Those people tried to have sexual relations with those angels, those angelic beings. You need to understand, when you pitch your tent among ungodly people who engage in ungodly practices, it'll take its toll. So, let me just share with you a couple of things about the people with whom Lot chose to pitch his tent. You ever thought about how he jeopardized certain things? I would submit to you that he jeopardized, first and foremost, his own faith. Now think about this. Over in 2 Peter chapter 2, the Bible says, speaking of Lot, identifying him as a righteous man. And the Bible says, he tormented or vexed his righteous soul day by day. Why? Because of the people with whom he lived, seeing and hearing their ungodly deeds. Do you not think it was do you not think that it was within the realm of possibility that Lot, over the span of time, could have compromised his faith? Apostasy, falling away from the Lord's church, never occurs overnight. It's like erosion, isn't it? Day by day, bit by bit, what happens? You start moving. And before you know it, way down the tracks. The decisions you make in this life, you need to ask, your, you need to ask the question, will it help my faith or hurt my faith? And I would encourage you, I would encourage our young folks. When you think about marrying somebody, you need to ask the question, will the person that I'm planning to marry, are they going to help my faith or hurt my faith? Are they going to break my faith or build my faith? You see, Amos, Amos asked a question many, many years ago. I think it's a valid question. He asked this question. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Here's the situation. You've got an unbeliever married to a believer. The believer's doing everything within his or her power to get to heaven and take his or her children to heaven. 
The unbeliever, on the other hand, is doing everything within his power to wrest faith away from the mate and hurt the faith of his children or her children. Now you say, I can't believe that would happen. Let me tell you what, it happens all the time. It happens. So you think about, he jeopardized his faith. Secondly, he jeopardized his family. Lot made this decision on the basis of sight, didn't he? Not by faith, he made it by sight. So here he is in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and what happens? When the angels come and tell him, look, we're about to destroy, the Lord is about to destroy the cities of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. What you need to do is get out of town. They ask the question, do you have any other family? Do you have any other family members here? He had two daughters, didn't he, and a wife? His wives, or rather his, his daughters had husbands. When he tried to warn his daughter's husbands, the Bible says they thought he was joking. Let me tell you what, he lost, he lost two sons-in-law and he lost his wife. Now I want to ask you a question. When you make decisions in life and you make those decisions on the basis of sight and not faith and you jeopardize not only your faith but the faith of your family, and let's just say hypothetically, you lose your children or you lose your mate. Was the decision that you made, what you had hoped was greener pastures, was it worth it? Was it worth it? You know what the answer is? No. Wasn't worth it. If we lose one young person from this congregation, we've lost one too many. Amen. I can't hear you. If we, lost, if we lose one young person, have we not lost one too many? Are you awake? Look. You lose your family and you've lost it all. The flip side, you save your family, you've saved, you've saved everything. We talk about Noah being a preacher of righteousness, and Noah was a good man. And we talk about Noah, here he is out preaching and teaching for 120 years. The only responses he has is his own family. You know what, in this day and time, I'd say it's pretty good, wouldn't you? If you save nothing but your own family, you've done a good job. That's all Noah did. So he jeopardized what? Number one, he jeopardized his faith. Number two, he jeopardized his family. And number three, he jeopardized his future, didn't he? Here you are, here I am, and we're thinking, you know what? The grass is greener on the other side. Everything looks good. Everything sounds good. I've got to have it. What? What if I lose my soul because of a poor decision. Because in my heart of hearts, I'm thinking the grass is greener on the other side, and guess what? It's not. So what happens? I get out here in the world, I get caught up with the wrong people doing the wrong thing, and before you know it, boom. I'm lost. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible speaks of a great number of individuals who live by faith. Over and over again, you can read about, you can read about it in Hebrews chapter 11, and, and the expression is, by faith, by faith, by faith. In verse 13, the Bible says, these all died in faith. Only two options. You can die in faith or out of faith, without faith. You can die in faith, without faith. It's up to you. The decisions you make day by day can ultimately impact where you spend eternity. Lot could have forfeited all of that. So, in closing tonight, I want to ask this question. When you look at the life of Lot, are there not some things that we can learn? Can't we learn from the past? You look at a guy that made, made, some, made some decisions that he thought were correct. Major blunders. The beauty of life is that we can make mistakes and we can right those wrongs. The beauty of Christianity is that we might be knee-deep in a life of sin, but God forgives. The psalmist said, there is forgiveness with you. So, what if your life's not what it ought to be and Christianity is appealing to you? What would you need to do? Well, number one, you need to believe Jesus is the Son of God. The Bible says, except you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins, John 8, verse 24. If you die in your sins, Jesus said, where I am, there you cannot come. Then you need to repent of every sin, just like they did on Pentecost Day, Acts 2.38. Confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then be immersed so that all your sins can be washed away, Acts 22.16. If you'll do that, God will put you in the church, Acts 2.47. If you'll be faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life, Revelation 2.10. If you're here tonight and your life is not what it ought to be, and maybe you've made some decisions because you thought grass, the grass was greener on the other side and you found out, you know what? I just traded one set of problems for another. If anything, I just compounded the problems that I have. And your life's not what it ought to be and you want to make things right tonight. Look, you have that opportunity. The Bible says confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. We'd be happy to do that with you tonight as we stand and sing.